The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, quit reading Dwayne's tweets and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 485 with guest Stephen Borg, recorded live Tuesday, March 10th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who just spent an hour and a half looking at Jennifer's body, Carl Franklin! Thank you. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Uh, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we'll be here for the next hour or so for your listening pleasure. Richard, no more chit-chat. Let's jump right into Better Know Framework. All right, sir, what do you got? So Better Know Framework is a little segment I do uh, every week, usually, where I shine a little light on some dark corner of the .NET Framework, a class, a namespace, an interface, something that you may or may not have heard of, and it's not training. It's just that over time, by osmosis, you'll learn something. If you think that's interesting, go into the documentation uh, or just go to your favorite search engine and um, and search for it, and you'll find the MSDN documentation on it. So today I'm talking about the uh, system.windows.controls.expander class. Now, system.windows is WPF, and controls is where all the controls lie. And we're talking about the expander control. So this is a control that displays a header that has a collapsible window that displays content. Okay. And I'm reading right from the documentation here. Uh, It's a headered content control. Its content property is content, and its header property is header. Uh, If the content of the expanded window is too large for the window, you can wrap the content of the expander in a scroll viewer control to provide scrollable content. Scrolling capability is not automatically provided by the expander control. For an expander to work correctly, do not specify a height on the expander control when the expand direction property is set to down or up. Similarly, do not specify a width on the expander when the expand direction property is set to left or right. 
when you set a size on the expander control in the direction that the expanded content is displayed, that area that is defined by the size parameter is displayed with a border around it. So a few things about the expander control. There's some really good XAML uh, examples, or there's one XAML example in the documentation, uh, as well as definitions for your favorite language. Check it out, system.windows.controls.expander. Cool. So, Richard, are you going to read us an email? I have an email here from uh, one of our regular emailers, actually. David Grove sent us an email. And oh, good. David is prone to going on. So, I'm, David, uh, excuse me, but I'm only going to read a piece of your email this okay. time. Uh, uh, hi, Richard and Carl. And I think he switches that up every other email. <laughs> With show 410 with Uncle Bob, I've marked it on my iPod with five stars because I want to refer to the show again and again. Wow. It struck various chords with me about process and improvement and standards and so on. Hmm. Something that I'm thinking quite a bit about at the moment and in an attempt to put myself ahead of the competition when applying for new jobs and contracting roles. Yeah. It's all very well to be able to say you do the technical stuff, but there's got to be a certain element of talking the talk as someone who's been happy to spend the last 11 years of my programming career focused on the technical stuff, the non-technical soft skills stuff I have found to be even harder to do as it's well, been sure. neglected. And this show was both comfortable and convenient for that. Excellent. Now I find myself stretching and improving. Hence, I listen to .NET Rocks. And as far as I know, I've listened to every episode almost. Okay, I'm a bit behind. I mean, listen to, listen to 410, but... I listen in a non-linear order, so don't go picking on me. There's a seemingly glaring holes in my story. Anyway, back to the purpose of my email. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, David, he gets a little off on the tangent, but interesting that he grabbed on to, to Uncle Bob's uh, whole discussion. 410 was a cool show. We really uh, drilled in deep there on uh, sort of the the craftsmanship of software development. It was an awesome show, and and he's always a pleasure to talk to. Um, you know, he's got a wealth of experience under his belt, Bob Martin does, and uh, he's he's perfectly willing to share his experiences and his opinions with us all. Yeah, good stuff. So that brings us to our guest today, and uh, that is none other than the Stephen Borg. Stephen is the founder of Northwest Cadence, a gold-certified Microsoft partner focused on Visual Studio Team System. He was selected as a VSTS MVP, there's a mouthful of letters for you, in the first round back in 2005 and has been a team system MVP ever since. He's a little A agile and big on understanding what makes successful development teams tick. If you're coming out to TechEd, be sure to head out a day early for his pre-con covering five ways real companies have gotten the most out of Team System. Visit his blog at blog.nwcadence.com to learn more. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much, Carl. Dude, you're doing a workshop? I am. I am. Yeah, that's big news. Yeah, that's tough stuff. It is. It's a, it was a lot of fun last year, and it's looking forward to doing it again this year. I'm doing a workshop on scaling ASP.net. Uh, that's your specialty. So yeah, you're, po you're trying to poach my attendees. Ah. <laughs> Every one of them, if I can grab them. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Uh, they're different audiences. So I presume guys who care about scaling will come and talk to me, and guys who care about team system will come and talk to you. Yeah, I'd imagine that'll be the case. And, and heck, it's a pre-con, so we can both drive more attendees there. Absolutely. And it's a long day, though. That's a lot of talking. It is. Luckily, I'm doing mine with Jeff Levinson, so I'll have a, at least a little bit of a break. We can go back and forth. 
So five ways real companies have gotten the most out of team systems. Sounds like you've done a lot of work for real companies that have been using team systems. I have gotten a chance to do a, a, a big chunk with a lot of different companies, from little tiny companies all the way up to uh, Fortune 500 companies. So. And do they typically hire you at the front end of the process or while the, when they're knee-deep in the gook? <laughs> knee-deep in the gook, unfortunately. Yeah. Some companies hire right out, uh, right out of at the beginning, and it ends up being a pretty good, successful implementation. A yeah. lot of times, though, I'm coming in as a firefighter. So when you are a firefighter, what, what are the typical problems that people have uh, put themselves into, the situations, the bad situations? The worst is just simply not understanding the power of team system. It really, they just jump in and they'll say, we'll install it on a server somewhere, we'll slap it together, uh, we'll try to make it match our process in some way, shape, or form, and then they just go whole hog, uh, checking things in, working with it, and they fail to understand that it uh, requires a little bit more. It takes some thought and some configuration up front. Yeah, and did how much SQL Server configuration does it require? Are all the scripts there, or do you have to like uh, build indexes and things like that yourself? The scripts are all there. Just yeah. basically off the install, everything's there, everything you need. Now, if you're running a very, very large implementation, uh, like Microsoft-sized, it's a little different. They do a little bit of tuning on their own. Yeah. But for the most part, it's not the case. It's a pretty easy, pretty easy SQL Server setup, at least. So, so is it then in the administration of and the setup of Team System, or is it the process? What, what is, what, what's the biggest gotcha? Biggest gotcha is that process piece. Yeah. People going in and, and not understanding what it can do and, and how they should configure it. I think the closest analogy most people understand is SharePoint. If you go right. in and you just say, you know what, my enterprise needs a SharePoint portal, and you pop in a SharePoint portal and you open it up to everybody to be able to create sites and you know, add new document libraries and just go crazy, pretty soon you're going to end up with more sites than you have people. And it really ends up being a nightmare for SharePoint. And it's similar with TFS in a lot of ways. Yeah, it sounds like you really want to keep everybody focused in one area. You kind of do. It, it really depends. And again, it depends on the organization, but at least some thought going forward. I think the correlation between the two is, is much clearer when you think about the branching structures. If you're coming from SourceSafe, you really don't have this concept of a branch, or at least not a very sophisticated one. Right. And when people are exposed to that power, a lot of times they tend to think, wow, we have this really cool branch and merge capability, and then they go crazy. And they end up with this just a proliferation of branches. And as uh, I think Eric Sink said it in your, one of your shows a while back, uh, a branch is like a puppy. Yeah. You know, it takes, it <laughs> I don't even remember what episode that was. It was a long time ago. Uh, the teams that I work with, you literally are counting the minutes before you merge that branch back in. They're so anxious every time they spin a branch off because it seems like the longer you're branched, the more pain it is to get back to the trunk. That's, that's pretty much the case in most, most cases. There are some times when it does make sense to keep it off the trunk for perhaps a long period of time. Those tend to be exceptions, though. Yeah, I, I, we have had cases where guys have gone off and done an experiment. This is a big thing where you branch off with no intent to ever merge, to really do a thought experiment, or could we restructure the app this way? And then ultimately they prove it or they disprove it, and then they toss the, trun the, the branch out. Yeah, that's often often a case for where you can do some experimentation on that branch. I, I think the important thing with branches to just keep in mind, and I, I don't want to run down the branching uh, guidance too much, but 
the important thing to keep in mind is they really are there for isolation. When you really need to be isolated from changes so that you can code confidently against a stable chunk, unchanging chunk of code. If the code is constantly shifting underneath you because other people are making changes that you're unaware of, that's a bad thing. So especially when it comes to a big refactor, I think, Richard, you hit it. When you're doing a big refactor like that, it's important to pull something off. Try out the refactor, and then maybe or maybe not merge it back. Who knows? Generally, I find that folks are so nervous to do major changes when they know they have to merge that they'll hold off on what they do. And so just sort of reducing that baggage and saying, look, I want you to branch, and I don't expect you to merge. I want you to, you're going to, next Friday, you're going to do a demo of what you've done in this refactoring, but I don't expect it to come back. So don't hold back. Go nuts. (laughs) Uh Yeah, a throwaway, you know, kind of a mock-up, a throwaway. Go ahead and try that refactoring out. Don't even need to worry about making it production ready, and then roll with it. Certainly a good use for a branch. For sure. And you're right. People can then really just go crazy. It's it's version control. So in theory, you can go crazy anyway, even if you are going to have to merge back in. But having that lifted off your shoulders probably is a good thing. So I can hear people out there saying to themselves, you know, team system is great and all, but, you know, is it really worth the money? Why should I... How do I sell this to management? Like, you know, what is the, 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 the value case to be made for using Team System? That's the crux, isn't it? And I think that that's one of the key areas where Visual Studio really shines in implementation. And it's, that, it's, the, it's the ROI. It's the return on investment. And I think it's very, very important for people to come to TFS less as an ad hoc tool they're just going to throw in place and more as something that they're going to use, a tool they're going to use to improve their software process. And if you do that, you come in with, with a different idea of what it means to implement TFS. You, you might even call it a project. You may get management buy-in. You've, you maybe have a sponsor. You look at it from a much more serious or enterprise perspective. And that's one of the key indicators when I go into an organization that's a key indicator of success. If they've got a uh, project description in place, they've looked at the project costs, and they've looked beyond just what it's going to take for the licenses, and they've actually gone through and looked at the time frame and and what are the success measures. How will that end result of this team system implementation be measured against what we are trying to accomplish, and will we be able to see an ROI? Hmm. And the companies that do that really implement TFS better than those that don't. It's an ad hoc approach. It does sound like a very formal approach to the thing. So what are the measures? What do you see in a good team system implementation? What happens to the team? In most cases, it's, it's really hard to answer because it's specific to each individual company. However, there are a few overriding principles. The, the things you're looking for, if you're coming from SourceSafe, you are probably experiencing some version control pain. And that's um, what drives probably 50% of the people to TFS I'm is thinking, the version yeah. control pain. Yeah, no, I was thinking, could I have less suck, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect way of putting it. And so, so that's a pretty easy one to measure. You, just, you can just find out how much time you're wasting on trying to do promotion to release using this weird idea of checking out of one source-safe database and then 
copying it to another directory and checking it into another source safe database or, or doing that kind of oddness. Uh, you're so giving me chills, ROI. man. Like mm-hmm. I did, I've forgotten all this stuff, and I'm so much happier. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, another another pain. ROI metric: um, ability to track work. Yeah. What kind of benefit does it give if your developers don't have to be pestered by project managers on a daily basis or weekly basis to find out their status? And if you're a developer, you know, you may think, yeah, it's only an hour a week that I really have to do progress reports. But if you're a project manager, you have to aggregate those. And they're losing a serious chunk of time, probably a day or more a week, just finding out those status metrics. So if you look at how you're doing that today and then measure against how you do that after your team system implementation, you should be able to measure a very concrete ROI, at least in terms of the time spent gathering that. So there's another one. Absolutely. To me, one of the key things I've found with Team System, and I think I've said this before, is this idea that every line of code is related to a work item somewhere. Ah, uh, yes. That's the thing I think we miss. We've we got to do that anyway. I'm, I'm thinking from a consulting perspective. Every time I go to Bill, I've got to somehow relate a feature or a, you know everything that customers asked me for to the code we wrote. And when you try and do that post facto, it's brutal. It is. It is. It's, it's extremely brutal. And with TFS, it becomes almost trivial. That tie between a requirement or task or bug that you're working on and the actual lines of code that have changed is completely transparent. In fact, that's one of those key areas where it's, it's harder to measure ROI, but you can get a gut feel from it. And maybe you have to do ROI via a survey, but you can get this idea of, People are trying to track their work. They're trying to track what they've done. And they, they check in code, and then they go to some other bug tracking system, and they enter the check-in number that they did, and they enter a bunch of information about it. Well, in Team System, that's almost completely transparent. You just associate that with the bug when you do your check-in, and that actual code churn is then associated with the bug. There's a lot of power there. So the uh, And then, of course, the interesting thing is going back to this idea of Here's that chunk of code, how many bugs were submitted around it, how long did it take to fix them, like actually working out, I love the idea of being able to work out the true cost of a feature, to be able to come back to the customer at the end and say, you know that feature you asked for, in the end it was this many dollars. Exactly, or this, much, this many lines of code, which is a good metric for overall effort, horrible metric for developer productivity because it sends the wrong signals, but great metric for overall effort. And you can find that out almost trivially just by ripping open Excel and creating a pivot table, dragging some columns in, and you're done. It's, it really is easy. I want to go back to that bug thing because that's one area where you, I really see payoff. If, for instance, I just came out of a company this morning, and what they had done is they had been using TFS, and not necessarily in the best possible way, but one thing they'd done is they had related all of their bug fixes and all of their code to individual bugs in TFS. And just as a, just for giggles, I whipped open a report that uh, just one of the ones that I've, I've built. And if your listeners want it, they can hit my blog and download it from the blog. But the idea is it just lists from the, all the files in your entire source code tree ranked by which ones have participated in the most bug fixes. In other words, get the crappy code right to the top. If nothing else, it gives you a place to refactor from. Right. 
Well, and it certainly also generates the blame feature, too. Gee, the top <laughs> 10 most buggy chunks of code all came from you. <laughs> right. Well, you know that blame is now built into team system. So <laughs> it, it's actually called annotate. They took some of that, uh, you know, kind of the sharpness away from it. But annotate, very powerful feature. And you can see who did write that credit code. And, and better yet, when you find out a really piece of nasty code, you can... You can click on the change set and see what other code they also committed during that same check-in. So you can find right. out what else they've messed up all at once. That Friday afternoon after six beers when you decided to refactor three chunks of code? Yeah, I see them right here. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, so in this down economy, is there anything – can VSTS actually help you keep your job? <laughs> it can. Now, that's wow. probably an extreme statement, right? How can a tool help you keep your job? But honestly, I think that one of the problems in software development today isn't the fact that, that we're all awful developers or anything like that, but I, I think that we honestly don't do software the development the way we should. People look at IT, or business people look at IT, and there's a real lack of trust between what IT promised and what IT actually delivered when they delivered it, what it was going to cost, and that failure keeps compounding. And the problem is when, they're, when those p- same people are presented with an outsourced scenario, they look at it and go, our team isn't doing that well. Let's give this a shot. And they, it opens up that ability to outsource. And team system really can help avoid that and it, by bringing in transparency to the software development process. Business people aren't idiots. You know, we may like to think they are if we're technical people, but they're not. They're, they're sharp people, and they don't want to be either lied to or misinformed. And developers aren't necessarily lying or intentionally misinforming, but they hide problems. Business people don't care if you're going to be late. Ah, they may care, but they don't care deeply. What they really care about is that you didn't tell them you were going to be late until an, a week before the ship date. Or a week after. So TFS gets rid of some of that opaqueness and, and lifts the transparency, lifts the veil on that to allow a lot more transparency in. And when they do that, you can then all of a sudden see what you can do. You know, what, what can you change to make things better? They can see what's the, uh, what's the problems with this code. It doesn't look so good. We might miss our ship dates. And they can see that early in the process. If you're going to fail, fail early, I guess is the, the, the statement there. And it really is important for people in this economy particularly to care about what the business thinks and what the business is doing. Uh, we all work for the business. And no matter where you work as a software developer, something's going to pay the bills. And the people that pay those bills want to know, are they getting money's worth out of their, out of their team? Have you ever seen a team system implementation fail? Too many, unfortunately. Um, I guess it depends on your, your definition of failure, and maybe it's appropriate to talk a little bit about that. Uh, for instance, there's the classic failure, right? People just implement it wrong, it's all buggy, and, and, and they just give up. That probably doesn't happen that, that often, actually. It's not that hard to install. It's not that hard to configure. And so that doesn't happen very often. But I have other failure modes that I consider. And I think the first one, that first failure mode, really is just 
the yay, we did it, installation. You know, the bunch of developers sit around and go, you know what, we hate SourceSafe, let's use TFS. And they implement TFS. And it kind of works. Maybe it's a little misconfigured, but it kind of works. Uh, the check-ins, check-outs um, almost always work. Everything seems hunky-dory. But there are little problems somewhere in the configuration, and, and people start to lose faith in even the version control piece of TFS or the work item tracking, or they, they don't see the benefits they're accruing because they're not, they're not using TFS to elevate problems to management. And even though TFS is in and it's running, I still consider that one of the classic failed implementations. It's, it's strange. You wouldn't think that if it's running and replacing SourceSafe, it's a failed implementation, but they, they really aren't getting their ROI. They're not getting all the value out of it. Isn't the failure here that they're not using the work items properly then? In a lot of cases, it's not using the work items, uh, either properly or at all. And uh, worse, uh, even if they are using those, they may not be using automated builds. They may not have continuous integration or at least nightly builds set up. And, and you're missing out on some of these core features and core benefits of TFS if you just leave out the automated build portion. And it happens all the time. Probably 50 to 70% of the implementations I see are missing one of the three key components to a successful base TF implementation. Work items, version control, and automated builds. Hmm. Why are automated builds so key to this? Yeah, they're, uh, because they're magic. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how else to say it. Well, and it also just um, it allows you to have a new build every day, really. It, it does, and to know where your integration failures are. Um, and and the funny thing is, I, when I look at it from a technical perspective, and I look at, like, when a company implements continuous integration, I honestly cannot find a technical reason why quality always improves. I can't. I do understand the idea that they're, they're doing that integration piece, and that's valuable. But where it really makes a difference, and I think it's psychological, I'm checking in the code. It breaks. I'm going to have to wear the silly hat. Well, it's not only that, but I mean, the time you waste, you know, uh, developer resources or managerial resources doing the builds, you know, moving things to a build machine, doing all of that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, soul draining work. Oh, it is. And it's, it's repetitive. It's repetitive. It's horrible. Nobody wants to do repetitive work. Yeah. You know, people buy tools like ReSharper and, and, and Refactor Pro and other things just so that they don't have to do repetitive keystrokes. When you're coding, when you're doing something you love, how much worse is it to be setting IIS configuration stuff when you're deploying it? Sorry, Richard. But when you're <laughs> moving that stuff out there. Oh, guys, come on. I'm fully on board with the automated build thing. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. It follows immediately by the automated test suite, too. Yes, it is. Because yes, this is, is really about the more often I build and test, the sooner I catch the mistakes that, that get past the compiler. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's one of the key areas. In 2008, already, it's, it's relatively straightforward to take a build. Uh, for instance, if it's a website, build the website, run a suite of unit tests against all your business logic, then deploy the website out to an IIS server, a dev IIS server, and run a whole series of build verification tests against it. Or if you're you know, feeling extra, one extra test, you can run full functional tests against it. I mean, sure. The, the world's your oyster at that point. 
Uh, I'm a big believer in getting to the point where we have to moderate the frequency of builds because the test suite takes so long. There's so much testing going on. <laughs> yeah, I love that's, it. That's, that's a great, great reason to not be able to do continuous integration. Yeah. That's my favorite reason. Sorry, we have, to, we have to run our tests only once an hour because we've got so many tests. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking, and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features, even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight-rich Internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks. You know, there's another, there's another failure point that, that I, I want to hit on because I think a lot of teams um, have, have run into this. It's the panicked implementation. Uh, things are going so poorly in the software development. They're, they're shipping late. They're having difficulties. It's just uh, everything is chaos. So they, they reach out to this tool as a savior kind of a thing, and they, they say, we've seen all the demos. It'll just fix our problems. And then they slap in team system it maybe even put it in exactly right, but they do it in such a way that it's a, it's a real panicked implementation. And they're, they're looking to it to solve the problems. And what generally happens is um, during an adoption of team system, there is a dip in productivity. And there's a, a decline when you're learning the tool. You're, you're still rocking it. You've got people not working on coding because they're building those automated tests. Right, and they're building the automated build, and you've got people just just figuring out how to do the branches and merges and to automate things. So there's there's a there's a dip in productivity, and these panicky companies often will take a tool like Team System, try it for two weeks, they're in the dip and they're just about to start climbing out and get the productivity benefits, and somebody comes in and says, "This is not working. Cut. Let's try a different tool," and then they slap in another tool and get that other dip in productivity and. Uh, um, I actually was in a company that did just that. Uh, the team system was, was one piece of it. Luckily, it was one of the last before they finally started to recover. But I, they had done five tools prior in just very quick succession within six months. And they had basically were driving the company completely into the ground, losing all their productivity. Uh, we, uh, across several developers, we measured just did an iteration, a quick one-week iteration where we could measure how much coding they actually were getting done. And uh, over a course of a week, it was 17 hours. And 17 hours 
maybe doesn't sound that bad if it's one person, but this was a team of 12. So, wow. Yeah, it, it was it was atrocious. <laughs> and, Disaster. Uh, and they were just, it, they didn't give enough time to learn the tool well enough to be productive. Not at all. Not at all. And, and expected people to do a lot of other things unrelated to the job as well. Just people were so frantic that they, they would spend hours a day in meetings, you know, chastising people for their poor performance <laughs> rather than letting them code. Nice. Um, and they lost a good chunk of their folks. But eventually they got it turned around. Uh, it it took months and uh, a lot of a lot of bad faith between the developers and the the business folks. The developers were pretty angry, and many left. And it took a while to get it back. But I think Team System was was instrumental in actually bringing that back. But it was only because they were able to commit. They were able to commit and realize some of the problems and just stick with the tool. Was that panicky one is another another common failure mode. Do companies also find that there are gotchas? In the, or do you find that, that, that companies get, get stuck in reporting? Uh, or is that sort of a no-brainer? I mean, reporting seems like a no-brainer to me. Are there any sticking points there? You know, surprisingly, that's one of the, the, the key sticking points. Really? Is reporting. It, it, it shocks me. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons that the CIO signs the check to buy Team System. Yeah. They make the investment, and yet... Very few companies that have implemented Team System are even looking at the reports on a regular basis. They thought, first of all, we'll get in work items, we'll go ahead and we'll get in version control, we might get in automated builds, but they completely neglect the reporting side and they never elevate those reports to management or to themselves. And it kills me because that's one of the reasons people sign the checks. That ties in a little bit to... uh, uh, What's Steve Harmon, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter or anything like that. He's a, he's a developer, and he, and he had some harsh things to say about TFS. Uh, he and Scott Belware were, actually had a, had a little Twitter storm, and I, I know Scott Belware has been on your show before and has talked about TFS and some of those implementations. But Steve Harmon has a, what I think is a, is a very strong belief that's, that's fairly founded in reality. And he says that Team System is a relatively large and very powerful tool. But people don't use the reports, and the reports that they do use don't have value. And his, his ultimate you know, decision, then, is don't use TFS. I, I think that's misguided. I really think that instead of throwing the you know, baby out with the bathwater, instead you should look at, well, why aren't I looking at the reports, and why am I measuring the wrong things? Team system is extraordinarily flexible, and if you let it, you can track exactly what you're looking for. So, what are what is it we should be measuring in the reporting that, that will give us value from team system? I'm going to give you another. It depends. Answer. Um, it really depends on your organization. There are a few things that you really need to start with uh, right out of the box. You're going to be measuring things like your bug trends. If you've got tests, you're going to be measuring your quality. You're going to be measuring code churn and code coverage, how much of your code is covered by your tests. And you're going to be measuring a lot of those things from a developer perspective. And then if you step up just a little bit, um, you'll be looking at it from the project management perspective when you're looking at the built-in remaining work report. And that report is really a cumulative flow diagram uh, used very often in in lean manufacturing and, and lean engineering to measure velocity and flow through a system. 
and I can look at a, a cumulative flow diagram and get a smell, identify when something's wrong in a system uh, relatively quickly. And, and most project managers can. They can see it and interpret it very quickly. It's a graphical report. Uh, that's straight out of the box. And, and I think everybody needs to be starting to look at those. So in order for that report to work right, are we basically saying that all of, if I, because in the end, my boss actually wants to know, will the app be built on time? I mean, that's the question he wants to answer. And, and, and another way to say that is, what is the status of this project right now? Yeah. Sure. I'm 80% done. You know, I'm, I'm two days into a three-week project and I'm 80% done. It's a lot right. easier than I thought. Yeah. Of course, four weeks into the three-week project, you're still 80% done half the yes. time. Well, you know, I like the fact that you can just at any time in the in the life cycle of the project, you can just pull up a screen and get a good snapshot of where you are. Yeah, you can really get a feel and, and, and a gut as to where you are. Yeah, but in order for that to work, that means I, I have to have decomposed this entire project into work items, right? Because yeah. if I'm looking at what work needs to be done, it's based on work items that haven't been executed on. That's correct. Do you find correct. people enter work items like, you know, <laughs> like do the accounting system. <laughs> On occasion they do. Yeah. Um, and then they throw, you know, just a, do. any estimate against that is a crazy estimate. Right. But, yeah. I, but here's where the team, team system has, has a lot of flexibility that, that is misused at times. Uh, because a project manager may really want to see the overall project, uh, they may ask, let's break everything down into a very um, fine-grained work breakdown structure. Maybe they'll even model it in projects because project you know, ties in with TFS. You, know, you, can, you can work in project and then publish the stuff to TFS. As people work in, in team system, they can publish those results back up into project and you can keep those in sync. But there's a, that works for a subset of software development. But there's a whole other realm of software development that I, I think is more interesting, and it's this flow-based look where instead of really planning out this feature is going to be done on this date, instead you say these features are, on aggregate, you know, maybe about 280 points worth of work, whatever that, whatever those points are. And then over throughout history, you know, throughout your previous iterations, you've kind of understood how many points you can get done in a given iteration, in a given week or two. And then rather than try to plan everything out, Instead, what you do is, is you just look at it as a burndown. This is the approach Scrum takes. It's the approach uh, most Agile teams take. And Team Systems supports that very strongly and very well. So why should we not wait until Visual Studio Team System and TFS 2010 come out? Why should, you know, I've, I hear, well, this is going to be the version of versions. Why should I get 2008 now? It is the version of versions. There are a lot of absolutely wonderful things in 2010. There's some just phenomenal testing features, things that really blow your mind. Um, but the, to the people who are thinking, you know, I really want to wait until 2010, I, I just have to say, I, it's, I think you, well, you definitely don't want to wait. The thing is, Team System is a big change to the organization. It really is implemented right. It's a big change. And if you wait until 2010, you're going to be adopting not only the process changes, not only internalizing the way you use the tool, you're going to have this entire suite of just phenomenally distracting and wonderful 
features in the client SKUs, and it'll be harder. I think you're going to be at a higher risk of failure. The, the way to implement is to start with 2008 today. Start with the Team Foundation server. Understand how it works. Begin to use it. Move forward with it. And by the time 2010 launches, you'll, you'll grok the, the paradigm that you're using. Right. It's not like you're going to have that. a decrease in productivity by buying 2008. <laughs> your no, productivity yeah. will increase and your, yeah. your performance and, and all of those great benefits of Team System will come to you now. Yeah, exactly. But it does seem like if guys jumping straight into 2010 with all these additional features are going to have a bigger dip. Yeah. It's going to be tougher to yeah. get it all working well where because it's that much bigger a version. This sounds like a and it, I don't see anything wrong with 2008. I've been talking to a lot of folks saying, "Well, you know, what do you like about 2008?" and and folks have a tough time remembering the difference between 2005 and 2008 on the studio side where mm. it's just been such a seamless upgrade. I right. think on the team system side, there were still big jumps in 2008, right? There was, I think the big win was that whole web client side, being more people being able to enter bugs, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and a, lot of, a lot of changes on the, on the side, not just performance, but usability and uh, better builds, the automated build process. Now we have continuous integration with just a click of a button. And yeah. A lot of improvements in 2008. And 2008 is very powerful. I would encourage people to jump into 2008 right away and then prepare the way for a 2010 implementation. Do you have any idea what the, um, what the pain level is going to be for migrating to 2010 when that comes out? I don't have anything on the record. I hear it's going to be less painful, uh, substantially less painful, to do the migration from 2008 to 2010, then from 2005 to 2008. Oh, I see. So I, I hear it's going to be far less painful than that. Um, it's going to, I mean, there, there's always a migration path, and because of some of the really dramatic improvements in 2010, there's going to be some steps you're going to have to take to move. But those are far overwhelmed by the benefits you'll get right now by going to 20, 2008. Um, well, there you go. I want to jump back to reporting for a second. I, I wonder if you've sure. seen this particular phenomenon, Stephen, where I had, I've had managers that are watching you know, a, a, a 16-week project, and at the end of like the two weeks or four weeks, they're looking at the reports and saying, we're never going to get this done. You guys are so far behind. And, and the real point I'm trying to make here is that feature development doesn't seem to be even across the duration of a project, that we tend to have sort of a slow start and then it accelerates as you go along. I don't know. Have you seen that? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, you're, you're mentioning just perfectly what a remaining work workflow looks like through a, through a project release cycle. You start off with this kind of slower growth as people are accelerating in, and it, it is slow. It's an S-curve, and people start climbing into it. They're setting up their continuous integration. They're setting up all the build structures. They're really understanding the business needs and the fundamentals around the code they're going to have to write. They might be writing spikes, architectural spikes. They might be doing a lot of these, these extra things. And then pretty soon they hit, their, they hit their stride, and they just rock it up, and you'll see their performance just go... Uh, quite dramatically upwards. And then as they hit the end, there's a little bit of integration work, and it slows down as they focus more on bug fixes. They focus more on, on some of the other more difficult problems, the, the uh, integration problems they might have had. And, and as you get close, and then they're doing things like packaging and getting things ready to go, and then the release. So it's this S-curve. And you're right. You can't, 
you know, you do want to fail early. You want to know if you're not going to make your release, but you also want to be very cognizant of that S-curve. Now, eight weeks in, if you're still crawling, now you, you should really, be really mm-hmm. need to seriously consider either, either dramatically reducing scope for that release, pushing out the release date, or axing that project altogether. So is it, is it at the 50% point you think is the fair measurement? I think 50% is a, is a very fair measurement. I think you need to be looking at it from before the 50% mark. I think the uh, warning bells are going off, in my mind, at about the 25% uh, mark on a 16-week project. If it's a longer project, you know, there's a little more lag time. But, but really, if you've hit that 50% mark and you're not on a slope that will get you close to completion, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it because you're really hitting your stride or you should be at that point in time. At the, so 25% mark, you're not expecting 25% of the features implemented then, are you? Like what, oh, what's a reasonable not. amount no, of No, no, not at all. At the 25%, even at the 50% mark, I'm looking more at the slope of the curve at that point. Um, am I, you know, if I extrapolate that slope out a bit, am I going to comfortably make my release date? And, and it's got to be comfortable at that point because of the, the top of the S-curve, which slows down a little bit. Yeah, and so you can you can really understand more clearly the risk to your project by looking at that cumulative flow or that remaining work report. And, and no, you don't have to be 50% done at the 50% mark. At the 90% mark, you should be 90% done, however. Yeah, I, I tend to agree that that's where it, you finally get to get down to it. But I, I also wonder... Yeah, where are those good inflection points for, for making a major change of where we just not understood the scope of things? I've often felt like many projects weren't actualized in the minds of developers until the 50% point. You're probably right. There's a, there's a real strong uh, – there's a, there's a case for, for giving developers a fairly long lag time before they really understand the project. The difficulty is at that 50% mark, some of the quicker developers would have grokked that earlier and be really pushing up that curve – and the, the ones lagging a little bit behind should be really catching on. And, and if they're not, at the 50% mark, I, it, it's at least a smell. It at least makes you go out and say, what's the situation? Where are we at? Um, in fact, one of the major indicators, this isn't related to TFS at all, but you'll find that at that 50% mark or 60% mark, developers at, at a gut really are starting to understand that they may not make the release, and they start looking for magic bullets. You know, right. Let's do link. You know, we were we, we had something else. We had N hibernate. Let's change to link. You know, let's do something different on the technical level, and that rarely works. Uh, my as a consultant, I was always brought in at the crisis point, and there's always at least one guy in the back of the room going, "We've architected this all wrong. We need to rebuild it." Right. Which is actually a great way of saying, "I need to double the amount of time we've got." Yeah. You know, maybe that, and maybe that's really what it takes. You know, you can twist the developer's arm to accept an unrealistic time schedule, but you can't twist their arm to meet the unrealistic time schedule. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think you were rather optimistic when you said, you know, a week before deadline, they're saying we won't make it. Uh, most of my experiences has been about two weeks after deadline <laughs> before they finally said, yeah, we're not making it. <laughs> yeah, I think, thank- I think you could absolutely be right <laughs> on that. Oh, it kills me. You know, it's, and, and when teams are implementing TFS right, they're really getting this kind of data. They really do get this kind of data. I see it on a daily basis. The, the folks we've worked with for, for, for months or for long, not 
all in a row, but just we touch back every couple months and we do a, you know, just a health check where we're looking back and, and seeing how they're doing and making sure that they're following up with their progress. And, and I see this really a strong change. And it, it's amazing what happens in an organization when they get it right. Um, one company we work with, it's a Fortune 500 firm, and we, we implemented in this really tiny part of the organization. It really is. It was, you know, 25 developers out of, out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of developers. But what's happened is that team is starting to see such remarkable transparency that those reports are being elevated all the way up to the CIO level of the entire organization. And the project manager, the, the senior project manager, was actually flown out to the East Coast to talk about their, their success with the TFS implementation. And you can see those changes as they happen. You know, conversely, you see the companies that, that have a bad TFS implementation, and, and it kills me because TFS is really, really powerful. And I, I, I feel when I go into one of those companies that, that I'm sitting in a Ferrari you know, on, the, on the German Autobahn, and uh, it's being driven by you know, some grandma who's really afraid of, of pushing it past 35 miles an hour. You've, you've got this wonderful tool, but you're not using it. You're not really pushing its limits. So, uh, Steve, I know this is yeah. late in the show to bring this up now, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are saying to themselves, or maybe not even listening to this because they're thinking, why should I spend all that money on Team System when there are perfectly good free alternatives out there, you know, not, not under one uh, banner, of course, but a combination of tools like Subvergen, Tortoise SVN, Cruise Control, NUnit, uh, you know, MBUnit, Nant, Team City, these kinds of things that can be used uh, in concert to get uh, the same kind of you know features that you can get with TFS. What do you say to those people? You know, I I, I respect a lot of those people. Um, there are it's process that, that's king here. The tooling is secondary to the process. Get the process right, and the tooling can support that. What I fear, however, is that most people take this ad hoc approach at, at pulling in all these end products, these open source products, and trying to use them appropriately. Um, that was uh, Scott Bellware on your show just uh, just a few months ago talking about it. And, yeah. and he really was down on, on Microsoft for even building MS Test. Well, I, you know, you, you, he's... <laughs> He's in a class by himself, I think. <laughs> yes, yes, he is. But, but I think there was a fundamental uh, misunderstanding. MS Test, despite its flaws and its strengths, it's a different product than NUnit. And, and he was flabbergasted that they'd even do the work. But yeah. Microsoft Test, really, even that, brought in some new concepts. For instance, you can use reflection to test your own private members. Hmm. And I don't know if Scott thinks that's a good idea, but we're used to reflecting on our own privates but we're not used to reflecting on other people's privates. Right. And maybe that's something we can do. I'm know. sorry. That sounded a little too funny to me. And well, it is funny, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to reflecting my own privates, but only with the door locked. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm reflecting on somebody else's privates, obviously something inappropriate is Just going don't on. Just touch other people's private members and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we should rephrase that into. I don't know. I don't know how to rephrase. Uh, it's that. an oldie but a goodie. Oh yeah, here on .NET Rocks. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> yep. And and but what what he does what what uh, what I think a lot of people do is they conflate the the individual tools with the power of the team system and and team system really says team right in the middle. That's yeah. the key element. 
And what they're missing is that integration piece. Like, right. it, I'll use Git or Subversion for source code. I can use Bugzilla, like you mentioned, for bug tracking right. or Jira. But I don't have that integration piece. Right. In two minutes, no, not even that. In just a few seconds, given, a, given Excel and a fairly speedy machine, I can, I can find out how many lines of code were required for a bug fix. Hmm. And, and why, why does that matter? Well, I could rank, I can look at my bug fixes and say, that was a nasty bug fix. That took 300 lines of code to change. Yeah. Chances are I'm going to need to test more on this feature that this bug is related to than I would on a, a line of code that was a bug that took a one line of code fix. You know, it was probably just a fence post error or something. Yeah. So maybe less testing. And I can identify it immediately. And you don't get that power out of ad hoc mixtures of open source tools. They, they don't have that integration story yet. That's not saying they won't, but they don't, they don't have, it, have it yet. Yeah. So, and, and I think there, that brings up a kind of a, an unfortunate disconnect between the open source community and, and the team system community. I, I think that a lot of the, or, or especially personified in the alt.net folks, which are, which are really good, fun developers. I was at the alt.net conference and loved yeah. it. Good stuff. Yeah, it is. It's great stuff. But, but there's a, and they're really smart people, but there's some kind of a disconnect that occurred. And I don't know how it got started, but there's some animosity. And I think both of the sides are navel-gazing. I think there's a, they're looking at their own experiences and thinking that their own development experiences really respect, represent universal truths. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a trap that we all fall into as developers, actually. You know, I've been, I've been fighting that tendency in myself for years. You know, you can't take your empirical evidence as, as, uh, as, as common experience. Yeah, and I think it happens on both sides. You know, it, it does. It happens to every developer. I, I have to, to consciously force myself out of that position yeah. occasionally to really to, to step back and say, where have, where have I fallen down in this? Yeah. And, and I think that there's value on both sides. You know, the, the, the community that's often focused on the, the, the open source tools or the and it's not just open source. It's the, it's the small, powerful, highly focused tools right. you know, that do one thing and they do one thing well. They, they look at their experience, in, especially those that are operating in small, very agile teams with really smart people around them, and they'll roll out and implement those tools, and they can get them, move, and go very quickly. And then you flip to the other side, the, the enterprise developers that are maybe working in large corporations or maybe are working in small agile teams, but have a, they see beyond just delivering the software, and they see things like, I, I can't just deliver the software, I have to be able to deliver it predictably, because my software delivery has to go along with the marketing campaigns. It has to go along with you know, putting things in cereal boxes. I mean, there's really a lot of tie-ins, and you're not developing in isolation. And those people, I think, tend to put maybe too much effort on constraints or process and constrain the developers. And I think there really is a middle ground that both people could come to. And I think Team System really is a substantially good tool for very agile teams. They can gather those metrics that they can use to then improve their process over time. I think the point you're you're making here is that one of the key values of Team System is the integration. That because those things work together, even if they may not be the very best version of each one of those features, the thing the fact that they're tied together tightly gives us a, a whole other level of value. Absolutely. You, I mean, you just nailed it. That's exactly 
my thoughts. And, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, there are pieces of team system where I think the open source tooling is maybe better. It may have a better user interface. It may have a better experience or, or other tools that are tightly focused. But I'm not going to sacrifice it for the integration piece that I get. I yeah. get that really powerful ability to, to, to reflect on my own processes, to look at those and, and really determine, what am I doing wrong? What could I do better? How could I be more transparent? Stephen, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. We're just about out of time. And uh, I just want to thank you again for, for sharing your thoughts on TFS, Team System, and, and all of your great experiences and stories from the fields. Great stuff. Thank you very much. There's one thing I want to mention just to folks, if I may, just to wrap up, and that's if, if you're trying to implement Team System successfully, Microsoft actually has funding available to help. They really? will. There are things that are free to you that will bring in an expert to look at your implementation and help you make that implementation successful. So if anybody's interested, they're free to jump out on, uh, shoot me an email. I, I set up one for .NET Rocks at nwcadence.com. And also for any of your listeners, if they're interested, we have alpha training that's going to be coming out. And anybody who would like a copy, uh, an evaluation copy, they, it's the full copy of all of our um, 2008 team system training. They're welcome to shoot me an email. All I ask in return is a little bit of uh, comments on what we can do to improve for our 2010 rollout. All right. So, again, if you, uh, that's a great offer in case you weren't listening. If you're interested in getting some funding for helping your team system set up, send an email to Stephen at .net rocks, D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S at nwcadence.com. Great stuff. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. It was fun talking with you, Carl, and fun talking with you too, Richard. We always have a good time, and thanks for coming. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy.